be in uh, chapter 3, 11 through 13. ask you this morning that uh, your message would be spoken and uh, and received, not in a mere exchange of words or ideas, but in the power of the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. amen. Let's stand, reading of God's word, Second Peter 3. And uh, we're actually going to be in 11 through 13, but we'll read 8 through 13 this morning. The Apostle Peter says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, or like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. As we just saw, we uh, through chapter 3, we saw the scoffers, and they were asking, well, where's Jesus? Where's the promise of his return? He hasn't showed up yet, and Peter has responded to them in a number of ways by saying, well, in, in redemptive history, God has um, shown himself to be the judge of mankind through events like the flood. And not only that, but time with God is not the same as time is with us. Time is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is just one day. So he comes to this conclusion, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but in fact, there will come a day when there will be a cataclysmic judgment that the heavens and the earth will burn up. Coming to that conclusion then, we come in verse 11 to his question. Since all these things are thus to be absolved, since all this is going to happen, this judgment is going to happen what sort of people ought you to be? That's a probing question. We like to kind of ask, what sort of world ought there to be? What, what sort of political system ought there to be? What sort of things do these other people need to do to be better? But he asks, in the midst of all this about judgment, who are you? What kind of people ought you to be? Coming judgment uh, needs to change the way we view the world around us. If it doesn't affect the way we live uh, in the manner of life that we have, we don't really grasp the gravity 
of that situation. Think of it as like the, the demonic anesthesiologist. He kind of has his mask over the orifices of your face. If, if you don't mm-hmm. grasp the depth and the, the horror and the beauty of the Day of Judgment, and if it doesn't affect our day-to-day lives, we are being anesthetized. So how does the confidence about the coming day of God, how does knowing that that day is coming, how does that change our lives? Or as Francis Schaeffer asked in a, in a different context, but it's a great con- a question for many contexts, is how should we then live? <laughs> so Peter gives us three things that I see here, three um, charges, if you will, in verses 11 through 13. The first thing we're to do in light of the coming day of judgment is cultivate Christian character. Secondly, we need to be engaged in patient action. And thirdly, we need to be anticipating restoration. So three things in light of coming judgment. Cultivate Christian character, engage in patient action, and anticipate restoration. So number one, cultivating Christian character in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Now, you notice there's not really a question mark there, at least in my text there are in a few. Um, but most commentators agree that the, the sense here is, what sort of people ought you to be? <laughs> question mark. People who live lives of holiness and godliness. That's the answer. <laughs> Practice our, our Christian practice, our Christian character, the things we do in our private lives and in the church. Uh, practice always flows from doctrine. Always. If, if we don't have, our doctrine always yields its fruit in us. So if we might understand something intellectually, but the doctrine that we hold in our hearts is the thing that will produce the fruits, that, the things that we believe. So in this case, the, whatever we believe about the day of judgment is going to directly and proportionally uh, relate to the way we live in this life and in light of the day of judgment. For example, if we have indifference over the day of judgment, our, our action is going to be apathy. If we have unbelief, like the scoffers and, and the mockers, then our, our, that's going to be our attitude. We will scoff and we will mock. Or if we have anxiety and fear over the day of, the, of God, uh, we may become preppers. He says in uh, verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness? And this word lives, it it has this sense of um, the way or manner of life, the way of life that we live. It's similar to our our concept, I think, of worldview, the way we understand the world around us, but it's more, more focused on what we do, our conduct. So this is corny, but I couldn't think of a better way to say it is, is our world do. From our worldview flows our world do. Or in a more theological way, our orthopraxy flows from our orthodoxy. And conversely, heteropraxy flows from heterodoxy. Our worldview affects and directly flows into our world do. So as a Christian, uh, our outlook on the world in light of the day of God yields a people who 
are people who tend the crop of Christian character. We work at that. We try to strive to produce Christian character. Now, where does this cultivation of Christian character come from, especially in light of the day of judgment? And first it comes from, I think, a right perspective of a holy fear of God, a right understanding of the day of judgment. We are not in Christ afraid of God in the sense that we're terrified, but we have a holy respect and a reverence and an awe of God. Another place where it comes from is an awareness of who we are in Christ, and this is crucial because we've got to get the order of operations right. We don't just please God based on our own abilities, but we are in Christ. So at the beginning of the book, Second Peter 1, 3 through 4, reads, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So we see the source there, His divine power, through the knowledge of Him who has called us into His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted us <coughs> His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So we we get the order of operations there right. We don't just um, muster up Christian character. We have all of this that God has granted by his power that we could do this. In Christ we can have Christian character. And he has granted us everything we need so that we are, in fact, removed and set apart from the world and from sinful desire. Another place uh, Christian character flows from is from distinguishing between uh, the world and the voices of the world and Christ, the voice of of the Good Shepherd. This is in opposition directly to the false teachers because it's holiness and godliness that they're attacking. They promote licentiousness. And this is, of course, one of the the key themes of the book of 2 Peter. So we must... Be holy as God has commanded us. We must be holy as He is holy. What is the substance of holiness and godliness? What does that look like? Well, we know the word holy means, really, I think, in two two uh, areas. The first is being set apart, and the second one is purity. And of course, the two overlap uh, a lot. But to be set apart really is a passive act. You're, we're made holy. We're set apart unto God. And he is the one who set us apart. In Second Peter, there's this real bold line of demarcation between those who are set apart unto God and those who are set apart unto destruction, just like there was in the Old Testament, that you're not to be like the Canaanites. So here in Second Peter, we're not to be carried away in sensuality as the false teachers or in greed or dishonesty or in mocking God, but we are separate from them. And purity and godliness, um, that's kind of the, the side of holiness that we, in the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, actively engage in. It is an act of, of becoming who we are. So he set us apart, but we're also laboring to work to be set apart, to not be like the world, to be more like Christ every day. So that our way of life here, as it were, reflects our actual status in Christ.
So, in application of, of this point, to, to what degree um, does the coming judgment affect our holiness and godliness in our own minds? I mean, think about that maybe throughout this week. How, how does the, the coming judgment, as Christians, how does that impact our holiness and our godliness? Because that's what he calls us to in light of judgment. Do we properly stand in awe of the power of the judge? Do we live as people who have been um, numbered among the sheep who, who one day will be separated from the goats? Do we recognize our status as a sheep? Are we living as men and women who have obtained a faith? This is from the beginning of the book, verse 2. Obtained a faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, this is not divorced from Christ's righteousness. It's a product of Christ's righteousness. <clears throat> Conversely, have we been anesthetized by the distractions and attractions of this world? That's what I find to be the greatest danger, really. It's not becoming this wild, crazy person. It's just being distracted by the world, by the, the so many different things that people put in front of our eyes to distract us, to bring our eyes from up here down here. And this may not be like a normal exhortation, but if you find your, your holiness and godliness to be subpar, which whose isn't, uh, check your eschatology. <laughs> Think about the end times. Think about the coming of the judge and who we are in Christ. I think that affects our godliness and our holiness. The second thing he calls us here to do is to engage in patient action. So verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So that's the description of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So that seems like a strange thing to, to, to be waiting for, to be hastening even. Like, like, are we excited for this day when the whole world's going to burn up? That seems strange. But we, we are excited and we are to wait and we are to hasten. And precisely because, unlike the false teachers, we will be judged as, as people in Christ. And we'll finally have our vindication from all those who attack both in doctrine and physically Christianity and we will finally have at the day of judgment the consummation that day when we'll see face to face when we'll see clearly as we are meant to and also on the day of judgment we have the resurrection and our ultimate glorification Colossians 3 4 says when Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory so that day of judgment is a day of horror but it's also a day of glory, especially for Christians. So we are then to be waiting and hastening the day of the Lord. Actively waiting. I, I like this idea of active patience because it's frustrating. Active patience. Calvin says, uh, Now this contrarious hope possesses no small elegance, like the proverb, hasten slowly. <laughs> kind of counterintuitive actively waiting active patience we in patience we're we're waiting on the lord to come and it's difficult difficult seasons are 
of our life, we're just, sometimes we just want to say, come back. It's kind of like that, that 39-week pregnant lady who's, it's time. You know, that, those are agonizingly slow days. We just want Jesus to come back. Patience is painful. Seasons of waiting are painful. But we don't just sit around and twiddle our thumbs while we wait. We're, we're also to be active. We are to, as he says, hasten the coming day of the Lord. How are we supposed to do that? Hasten the coming day of the Lord. Acts seventeen thirty one says he's fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. He's fixed the day. How are we going to hasten it? This is one of those, those many areas where God is sovereign, but he graciously includes us in his plan. The day, the day is set, but there's, there are also contingencies. So it's not that we can change the day of the Lord either by our effort or by our laziness, but there are certain human contingent conditions that need to be met, and they will be met in God's providence and his timing before he comes back. So a few examples of this. Um, evangelization and missions needs to happen as we saw in, in uh, verse 9 from last time, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So there's some that still need to be reached with the gospel. And we read in Matthew twenty four fourteen, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the implication here is that there are people who are yet unbelieving, but they are elect and they have yet to repent. And it's our job, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, to bring it out to them. Another thing that we need to be engaged in in hastening the day of the Lord is prayer. Luke 11, 2, your kingdom come, the Lord's prayer. Um, our eschatology and where we stand on that may differ on how we might view that, that phrase, but ultimately we want the kingdom to come in its full consummation. And we pray for that. We say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Prayer also serves the other aspect, which is evangelism and missions. Prayer is an effective tool in evangelism and missions. Colossians 4, 3 through 4. At the same time, Paul says, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So Paul urges them and us to pray that there would be doors opened. Of course he trusts that God will open the doors, but we're to be actively engaged in prayer so that he can Go where he needs to go and speak as clearly as he needs to speak. <coughs> the other element that needs to happen before the Lord comes back is, is obedience and repentance, which is related to all, all of the others. But in Second uh, Peter 3.11, he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? There's this expectation of obedience and holiness. In Acts 3, 19-21, we read, Repent, therefore, 
and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So the point here is we have a role to play in God's story. We who believe in the providence and the foreordination of God can sometimes get hung up on that. But we need to look at it as a privilege. God will accomplish what he sets out to accomplish. His decrees will come to pass. But he's given us a delightful duty and a role to play in his story and in his redemptive history. We need to view it as a a privilege and, and use the day of the Lord, of God. That should motivate us to take up that privilege with enthusiasm. So I've said that the word uh, for for Second Peter that I think best sums it up is competence. That's, I think, the theme of Second Peter. And this posture of, of eager expectation and patient action to hasten the day of God, <clears throat> that's a posture of, of confidence in, in that day. That, that day that the heavens will burn up and, and be on fire and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. When we want to wait for that longingly and, and with expectation and we want to hasten that, that's a posture of confidence in the day of the Lord, which the false teachers cannot share. <coughs> waiting is, that, that act of waiting, the painful act of waiting is an act of confident uh, faith and hope. I like Psalm uh, 25 here. It's, it's a striking picture of how waiting on the Lord is an act of faith and hope. Psalm 25, 3-5, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. So we need to be undertaking the the duties of the Christian life, not as mere duties, which they are duties, but as an outflow of of faith. This is the sense that we, we get from verse 13. This is the third point the third thing we're to to do in anticipation of the day of god anticipating restoration verse 13 but according to his promise we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells so the question here i think to me is is where are we putting our trust that that's the question it's a long wait, you know, at least it seems like a long wait for us. That, that accusation sometimes rings true for us. Where is the promise of his coming? And that, that allure of, of sensuality or greed, those things are really more attractive to us, even as Christians, than we might like to admit. And the truth is, patience is always painful. And oftentimes that, that labor of, of action, of hastening, it bears fruit, but fruit that we never see. 
So in, in those challenges, where are we going to put our trust? In, in the voices of this age or in the promises of God? Because what God promises, he surely does. And he has promised a new heavens and a new earth. It says, according to his promise, we are awaiting the new heavens and the new earth. That's our confidence. The promise of God. According to his promise, we wait for those glorious treasures that are to come. We have this promise uh, given to us in Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. In Isaiah 66, 2, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. So God has said it, and it will come to pass. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And the contrast here is the present heavens and earth which will be dissolved, while the new heavens and the new earth will, as Isaiah 66 said, Remain before the Lord forever. Now what are these new heavens and new earth? That's a difficult question. What are the new heavens and the new earth? Because it's, it's difficult to say because outside our, our current range of language and experience, that's where the new heavens and the new earth exists. It's, it's outside of our ability to fathom. Like what Dennis Johnson says, he says, prophets and apostles strain language to its limits to offer glimpses of glorious realities beyond our experience. Borrowing a little bit more from him, here's, here's what we can positively say about the new heavens and the new earth, is that in it our Resurrection will be physical, just as Jesus' resurrection was physical. There's a material element. It's not just this spiritual realm or floating on clouds, right? So we can expect to have a physical realm. And, and that whole imagery of the tree of life and the river and, and the streets of gold, um, those may be figurative, they may be more precisely literal, but what is for sure is that they certainly represent a, a physical element to the new heavens and the new earth and I think I can't say definitively but I, li I like the way uh, G.K. Beale kind of describes um, the <coughs> new heavens and the new earth and he has a couple lectures on this which I'll send to anybody who wants you can ask me af afterwards but he does this he, he does amazing work tracing st biblical storylines through from Genesis to Revelation on many topics and, and on this issue he highlights the the common motif of the temple. The, this idea of the temple runs throughout. And he argues, I think quite convincingly, that the Garden of Eden functioned as a temple. And he traces this temple motif through the Bible, through Ezekiel 40 through 48, which is the vision of the new temple, and all the way to the end of Revelation. And his conclusion is, is simple, but it's interesting, is that the new heavens and the new earth is described as a city in the shape of a temple that's garden-like. A city that's in the shape of a temple that's garden-like. So we have that theme of temple, the theme of garden running throughout. But our duty, really, as Christians, is not to figure out all the details of that which is still, by and large, a mystery to us. Rather, we are to see its meaning for what it is, and that is our hope of our future presence with God. 
Because what is the whole point of the temple? Or what is the whole point of the Garden of Eden? It's that God's people were with God. His presence was in the midst of his people. And that really is our hope of the new heavens and the new earth, is, is that our communion with God and our, our, we'll have life in his presence, lived in God's presence. That really is the hope. Whatever it looks like, life with God is hope. We read of this in Revelation 22. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, in the new heavens and the new earth. And his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. There we have that picture of the presence of God will be in the very midst of God. And furthermore, we will not be afflicted by sensuality and the greed and dishonesty of these false teachers. Because he says that this city and this new heavens and this new earth is, is the place where righteousness dwells. That's what Peter says in verse 13. The place where righteousness dwells. Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And in Isaiah 60, Your people shall be righteous. This is in the context of the new heavens and the new earth. And they shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. So finally, at the end of all things, at long last, we will have a land that, that represents true justice. That's something we all want. That's something we all fight about. In, in, in America, this whole social justice conflict and, and justice, what is justice? Finally, in that day, we will have righteousness and we will have justice. And, and no impurity will remain, no sickness, no brothers sitting out because of sickness. We'll all be before, before the throne. No death, no rebellion, no perversion. It will be a redeemed creation and it will be good, even as God claimed, uh, declared this world to be good at the beginning. He will restore what is good. So this is what we look to. This is our hope as believers. And I was thinking about this, and again, I was thinking about my own impurity. You know, and don't don't you just hate your sin? Isn't it so frustrating? You know, there's time and time again, failure after failure. And communion with God even can be a struggle. You try to, to relate to God, to read, to pray. But improper thoughts, improper motives come barging in and, and haze and, and distort the light that we would normally have. But on that day the day that all things are made new, we will finally have full and complete liberation from what Paul calls this body of death. We'll stand before God's throne and, and worship uh, for eons, where right now 20 minutes might be a struggle. And during that time, not a single thought, a single impure thought, not a single impure motive will cloud our vision. 
I love that, the, the hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood, that last verse is just so wonderful to me, that, that promise, Dear dying lamb, your precious blood shall never cease to lose its power. Tell all the ransomed church of God, be saved to sin no more. That to me is a far more glorious thought than streets of gold. Who cares about gold if God is in the room? So all of this motivates me to strive, uh, not on my own power, but in the power of the word and spirit toward greater holiness and godliness in this life. Because doing that involves a lot of discomfort and pain. We're quite literally carving away pieces of our flesh when we deny sinful desires. It's painful. It hurts. But the more God grants us Christ like this, the more we uh, get an advanced, foreshadowed, (laughs) tiny taste of those glories of the new heavens and the new earth, of that fellowship with God. (coughs) Paul says it best in Philippians 3, 8 through 14. He says, Indeed, I I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it, attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the goal. That's our task that we have on this earth, is to strive for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, in conclusion, what what is that way of life? In light of the certain destruction of all things on the day of God, what is that way of life that Peter calls us to? And here it's really this surprising but wonderful reality. The things Peter calls us to are, are basic Christian fundamentals. They're not... You know, this this catastrophic event and what does he give to us you know buy your buy a bunch of guns and, and build a, you know, no basic christian fundamentals cultivating christian character may our way of life be more and more christ-like every day engaging in this patient action learning to to wait with patience on the lord's timing well not growing apathetic at the same time about the role that god has given us to play and finally, awaiting that final restoration. May our focus be ever toward that great, greater homeland where righteousness dwells, and we will be in the very presence of God. Amen.